Welcome to The Politics Guys. I'm Michael Baranowski, a political scientist at Northern Kentucky University. My guest today is Ryan Avent. Mr. Avent is a senior editor and columnist at The Economist and author of The Gated City and, most recently, The Wealth of Humans, Work and Its Absence in the 21st Century. In addition to The Economist, his work has appeared all over the place, including, but hardly limited to, The New York Times, The Washington Post, The New Republic, The Atlantic, and The Washington Examiner. Prior to coming to The Economist, he worked as an economic consultant and an industry analyst for the Bureau of Labor Statistics. He has an economics degree from North Carolina State University and a Master's of Science in Economic History from the London School of Economics. Ryan Avent, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I'd like to start with the title of your latest book, which I guess is a nod to Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Of course, a book written in the early stages of the Industrial Revolution in an attempt to get at what makes nations prosperous. And so I'm wondering, do you agree with Smith that other things being equal, nothing beats free markets and the invisible hand for creating prosperity? I, I think I do agree with that, if, provided we sort of, you know, keep the other things equal in mind. Uh, you know, at, at the time uh, Smith was writing, he uh, there was a very different intellectual climate. You know, he was pushing back against the idea that, you know, for for countries, um, you know, competing against each other, um, you know, a gain for one was necessarily a loss for the other. And so the idea that actually there's the opportunity for mutual gain through exchange was really important and and not something that people wide, you know accepted at the time. I think that's sort of built deeply into our culture now, the idea that you know markets work, markets are a good way for us to to uh, make ourselves richer as a society. Uh, and I think kind of the um, the context to remember now is that you know markets have to, have a social legitimacy that we all have to, you know, continue to agree that that's the right way to to run an economy. And if if the outcomes that we see are too unfair, if they overwhelmingly benefit some groups and not others, um, then that legitimacy kind of falls apart, and we wind up in a place where we're all much worse off. Right. So so you're essentially you're pro market, but you I guess would take issue with some of the uh, uh, sort of blind market cheerleading that 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 goes on in some quarters. Yes, I think that's right. Okay. Now, the second part of your book's title is Work and Its Absence in the 21st Century. To me, that suggests you think work is going away, at least to some extent, in in this century. And so uh, what's going to happen to all those jobs? Well, that's the big question. And and the book focuses on... Uh, you know the digital revolution, the uh, the arrival of really powerful computing tools that I think will eventually allow um, you know allow machines to do um, quite a lot of what humans do today, and uh, and that's going to create um, some pretty significant challenges for us. Now the the question of what exactly happens to work depends um, almost entirely on how we respond to it. And, uh, and that's a lot of what I try to get to in the book. And I think there's sort of this, this, you know, the popular concern is that suddenly we have robots, they can do anything humans do. There's mass unemployment and, you know, and then either we're in a utopia or um, the robots take over or something like that. And I think it's actually a more complicated picture than that. Um, you know, I think what we would like to do is, um, move toward a world where people can work when they want to, uh, where they have opportunities to develop their skills and contribute. But we have all these social systems in place now that depend on people earning a living 
through by working full time. So we don't have a very generous social safety net. You can't really live well uh, or outside of poverty if you're not working. A lot of the benefits that we get from healthcare and pensions come through jobs. And so if we're going to to move toward a world where we're all working a lot less, we have to to find a way to restructure society to you know adjust the ideas of what we think people ought to do with themselves during the day. And that transition is going to be incredibly difficult. I'd like to welcome new sponsor Lord Timepieces to the show. They're a London-based watch brand, and they offer an extensive line of classic, stylish men's and women's watches with quality construction at great prices. Models start at just $84 US with free shipping worldwide. I got the Midnight Black model from their Bolt collection, and it is by far the best-looking watch I own. It's also, without a doubt, the coolest watch I've ever owned. This kind of manly black, as you probably guessed from the name, with one artfully placed slash of color, this crimson red secondhand. It's very cool. But, you know, if manly black with a very cool crimson slash isn't your style, that's not a problem. They've got tons of choices in both men's and women's models. It actually took me a while to decide on which one I wanted because there were so many excellent options to choose from. And Politics Guys listeners, you get a special deal, 10% off by going to lordtimepieces.com and using our code TPG. That's lordtimepieces.com and use our code TPG. You know, I, when we talk about the loss of jobs, I think most people think, well, sure, the, the guy who's working on the line, a GM or something like that. But when I've talked to the, the economists who, who look at this issue, like, for instance, Martin Ford, uh, who wrote that book, Rise of the Robots, I got the sense that it's not just these manufacturing jobs. I mean, it could be university professors. It could be economists, columnists. I mean, anyone who's essentially, you know, not uh, like a, a skilled tradesperson person who comes to your house like a plumber or an electrician that we might all be in big trouble before too long. And, and I'm wondering if you uh, sort of agree with that. I do. I mean, I think it's 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 certainly true that the easiest jobs to automate are the ones that are very routine, uh, you know, where people do basically the same thing over and over again. And that ends up being factory work. Uh, or, you know, uh, you know, people who um, have really basic uh, service jobs like in retail, you know, taking orders uh, at a restaurant, things like that. But I think that as we seek uh, the new technologies develop, we're increasingly going to find that, you know, a lot of the stuff we thought only humans could do really is susceptible. Uh, and, you know, that includes things like driving. It wasn't that long ago when, when everyone thought that, you know, driving was just way too complicated for a computer to do. Um, now we know that's not true. It includes things like interpreting human speech, which is a critical part of a lot of different jobs in which computers are getting better and better at. Um, but I think you're right. Um, you know, professionals often think that they are, um, you know, relatively immune from all this. Computers are going to be able to do some of the work that, that, that lawyers do or that, um, you know, researchers do. Um, but the other thing that's going to happen is that computers are going to make the really good lawyers or the really good doctors or the really good professors um, much more productive and able to serve many, many more people. And so even though we're not automating those jobs away, we're still reducing significantly the number of, of those people that we need in those jobs. And so the, the effect is sort of similar, right? If you're hoping to be a professor, if it's suddenly, you know, the case that we need a lot fewer professors, um, you know, it's, it's basically the same as if there were a robot in front of the classroom. So I, I, I don't expect that any of us will be, be particularly immune and, you know, some people look at care professions and, and think, wow, that kind of one-on-one -on -one contact 
it has to mean that those those things are safe. Uh, and even there, I'm not not quite sure that's right. You know, if you think about people um, doing therapy, you know, therapy is something that on the one hand does involve a lot of kind of very personal communication. But because it's so personal, you can imagine where if we had a good AI that could do therapy, people would feel more comfortable talking to a machine about things that are kind of deeply personal than they might to a, you know, to an, to an individual. So, uh, yeah, I don't think there's, um, I don't think there's anyone who should feel completely comfortable about, uh, you know, the way technology is going to affect the economy. Right. You know, there's also a lot of debate about the timeline of this sort of thing. There are some people who seem to think it's right around the corner. And then there are other people who say, yeah, sure, this is going to happen, but we're talking 50, 100 years. I mean, how imminent of a, I guess, threat or opportunity, depending how you look at it, do you really think this is? Well, I think if you are talking about a world where machines can really do, you know, just about anything that a person can do, that is, you know, 50, 100 years away. Um, but I think if we're talking about a world in which uh, things like artificial intelligence um, can disrupt, um, you know, uh, jobs and and uh, and job categories that employ, you know, five, ten, fifteen percent of the workforce, that's 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 much closer. That's in the next ten to twenty years. I, I think one thing that that I try to point out in the book is that just because we have the technology to do that, though, doesn't mean that all those jobs will go. Uh, if you know, if it's the case that um, new technology holds down wages and so, you know, companies can employ lots of people for not very much money, they have less incentive to start using those robots. And so, you know, one outcome here is that we don't end up in a world of mass unemployment. Instead, we end up in a world where we're not using as much technology as we could be using and where there are a lot of people in, in really low wage jobs. And, and that, I think, is in some ways, the most likely outcome and, and kind of a, a worrying one. Right. Now, what about, though, education and retraining? I mean, in the past, when we've had technological advances, this seems to have worked to get people into these more demanding jobs. And do you think that we finally at the point where we've hit kind of that level of diminishing returns uh, for education and maybe combined with sort of increasing cognitive demands on for these new jobs that will make sort of educating ourselves out of this problem difficult or impossible? I think we're definitely at the point of diminishing returns. Um, I think there are, you know, there are certainly a lot of ways that we could improve what we're doing in education and training. You know, all these new technologies are creating demands for people with um, with particular skill sets, and it would be nice to to fill those uh, fill those needs. But, you know, what we did in the 19th and 20th century, uh, when we really upgraded the educational level of the entire population, and and um, and, and and you know made it possible for these technologies to be deployed without causing, you know, massive inequality. Uh, that's not going to be possible again, I don't think. It's just not, you know, we're at the stage where about 90% of working age adults across the rich world have uh, a secondary school degree and 40 to 50% have some sort of college degree. And it's really, you know, it's really difficult to imagine us doubling, for instance, the, the skill level of the population from that point. So, Certainly education has to be a part of the solution, but I think it's it's just going to be a, a small part and a lot of other stuff is going to have to happen if we're going to avoid a real crisis. Right. So along those lines, then, would you expect that the premium, uh, the salary premium associated with a college degree to diminish then over time as this, as this happens? 
I think that's a real possibility. I mean, we have seen over the last decade or so that the wage premium for a college degree has has flattened out. It hasn't disappeared. It's still, you know, you still get a bump if you go to college, but it hasn't been growing as it was before. Um, the wage premium for an advanced degree is still growing. Um, you know, that probably will continue for a while. But again, it's really hard to expect us putting lots of people into graduate degrees in computer engineering. Those are really hard programs. So, um, and then the other thing we're seeing is that um, a growing share of the workforce uh, with a college degree uh, is working in jobs that don't require that degree. So people are getting the degree uh, and finding that the only jobs they can get are ones where that's not really necessary. Um, and so they're underemployed, they're finding it difficult to pay back their student loans. So, you know, again, it's it's generally worthwhile to get one, but it's not the ticket to kind of, you know, prosperity that it was in the past. Right. Now, you mentioned the student, the student loans uh, portion of it, and, and that's, a, that's a type of debt that seems to be keep on going up and up. And so it seems like more and more kids are, are getting degrees and going into debt for them, and yet the returns they're likely to see are going to be diminished over time then. I think that's right. And I think it's, you know, that's a very good example of an institution um, that worked well in the economy sort of uh, that we, you know, we're, we're used to being the norm. Uh, and as the economy changes, that institution is no longer working well. And it's kind of approaching a crisis point where we realize we've got to do things in a very different way. And a there are a lot of institutions like that, um, including kind of pensions that are provided through jobs, um, including, uh, you know, healthcare that's provided through jobs. And all these things are going to just, you know, they're not going to work the way they did when everyone could count on a good 40 hour a week, uh, you know, job and a, and a, and a long-term career with sort of using one set of skills as being, uh, you know, something that everyone could, could look forward to. Just a quick break to tell you about one of today's sponsors, SeatGeek. If you've ever bought tickets to live events, I'm sure you know it can be a hassle, but it doesn't have to be. SeatGeek gives you a smart and simple way to get tickets to concerts, sporting events, and all sorts of other things. With SeatGeek, you can find the best seats at the best prices. It's fully guaranteed, and it only takes a few taps. You know, I've got the SeatGeek app on my phone, but right now I'm at my computer where I just now pulled up their site, SeatGeek.com, and it listed everything going on near Cincinnati, which is where I live. And within seconds, I was all set to buy tickets to the ZZ Top concert. And with one more click, it gave me a listing of everything going on for months at the Southgate House, which is my favorite venue for shows around here. Plus, with SeatGeek, you get track and get updates on venues, events, all the performers you want to see. So, for instance, the next time my favorite group, which is, I think, the old 97s, when they come to town, I'm going to know about it. And you can even connect with Spotify, your music library, and Facebook to get notifications about artists you listen to or follow. Though, if you're not a you know, notification person, you can easily turn that off. And when you buy a ticket, they'll even put the day and time of the event on your calendar if you want. Best of all, Politics Guys listeners get $20 off their first SeatGeek purchase. Just download the SeatGeek app and enter promo code POLITICSGUY. That's POLITICSGUY, no S. I don't really know why, but there you go. Just POLITICSGUY. Enter that today, and that's promo code POLITICSGUY at SeatGeek for $20 off your first purchase. Thanks. You know, I'm going to... Just push back a little bit on this to get your reaction. You know, some people have said uh, these comparisons between the industrial revolution and the digital or computer rev revolution are, are are really not all that 
Good, because that the computer revolution has been sort of a big nothing burger, you know, that there's that old line about how you see the computer revolution everywhere, but in the productivity statistics and people are essentially overreacting to this. Uh, what do you think about that, that line of reasoning? I mean, I, I, I certainly understand where it comes from. And probably five or 10 years ago, I would have thought um, that that's right, that basically the the digital technologies that we are you know discovering today aren't nearly as powerful as it, you know it was to discover electricity or steam engines or you know or, or cars um, I think it, that gets harder and harder to accept as time goes on and as we see just how capable the new technologies are and and to me machine intelligence is the thing that's really going to be a game changer uh, we, we it's not in wide use now people are sort of figuring out how they can use it in ways that um, are, are profitable but um, you know thinking computers that can really respond to individuals uh, as a human would um, that's just something that can be transformative in industries right across uh, the economy and uh, will turn everything on its head so I you know I I think um, it, it is it is correct that the productivity statistics at the moment don't don't look as we think they ought to if we were really experiencing a revolution. But it's also instructive to look back at the 19th century and note that it wasn't the case that year after year after year there was rapid productivity growth. There were booms, there were busts, there were periods when we had a new technology but we hadn't figured out how to use it yet, and there was a bit of a lull. So, I, you know, I think ultimately we will we will see that this is. is uh, as fundamental a change in the economy as, you know, the industrial revolution was. Right. So it's kind of like, I guess there was that period in the beginning when, when electricity was introduced to factories where the factory workers or the, sorry, the owners didn't know how to sort of arrange their machines to, to take advantage of them. We're still setting things up as if they were, were steam powered or things like that. And so we need to learn how to uh, use the technology in the most, in the most efficient and productive way, at least in part. Absolutely. I think that's exactly right. And I think the thing that's really, you know, scarce in the economy today uh, that we have way too little of is just uh, the know-how to use these new technologies in a, in a productive way, in a way that improves life for people. And um, it's going to take us a while to build up that stock of knowledge. Um, but but once we do, it's going to be um, there will be dramatic changes, I yeah. think. Well, and, you know, with any dramatic change, it seems to me that the, the effect is never uniform. Right. And so certain groups, I assume, are going to be affected in a in a bigger and a smaller way and more and, be, and less beneficial ways. And so I'm wondering, who do you see, at least in the near term, being the, the likely winners and the likely losers from from this shift? Well, I think. The the pattern that we've seen over the last ten to twenty years is 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 pretty instructive. That um, you know sort of basic uh, you know basic skills are probably going to continue to be, be devalued by new technologies. Um, consumers will benefit in some ways. Um, you know we have you know this wealth of information available to us for almost no money um, as the technology and for, for sort of medical care and education work improves, those things ought to get better and cheaper as well. So consumers will benefit a little bit. Um, and then I think the big winners will be, uh, the people who, you know, control the technology, who have control over that limited stock of know-how. Um, and that's, that's largely going to be, you know, shareholders and, and top managers at big companies like Facebook and, and Apple. Um, and, uh, you know, they're just they're in a position where they um, are able to uh, to uh, to uh, wield quite a lot of bargaining power relative to both 
the workers they employ, uh, the people they sell to, uh, you know, their suppliers. And um, that's not going to go away for quite a long time, I don't think. Our final sponsor this week is Blue Apron, the number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the United States. Their mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. They made it accessible even to me, and I'm a guy who's about as much of a gourmet cook as Donald Trump is a shy, reserved wallflower. And they do it with amazingly fresh ingredients, all while partnering with local producers around the country and sourcing to support a sustainable food system. Now, the thing I really love is that you get everything you need, I mean, down to the seasonings, delivered right to your door with clear, full-color preparation instructions. Even I can make great meals with Blue Apron, like warm smoked trout and asparagus salad with fingerling potatoes and garlic croutons, or spiced zucchini enchiladas with creamy lime and tomato rice, and peach honey glazed chicken with mashed sweet potatoes, collard greens, and Thai basil. Good stuff. And all this deliciousness is less than $10 per person per meal delivered right to your door. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash TPG. The TPG is important, obviously, because that lets them know that you're coming from us and you'll get your discount and we'll get credit for bringing them to you. So you'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Well, you know, I'm also wondering if there are going to be likely to be effects that are different in different countries. I mean, do you think that there are any countries that are maybe better or worse positioned for this sort of change? Well, I think that um, sort of speaking broadly, the d- developed countries uh, are, are in a much better position. Uh, it's going to be much easier for them to you know, deploy these new technologies as, as they um, as they sort of become ready for use. They also have well-developed social safety nets that are going to provide more of a cushion for the people in those countries as these disruptions occur. Um, I think things are going to be very difficult actually for the emerging world. And there's they've there's been a kind of a, a, a very lucky period, or fortunate period over the last 15 years where a lot of poorer countries were growing very fast, catching up to the rich world. Um, and a lot of people in those countries were, were, were coming out of, you know, sort of serious poverty. Uh, and that was a good thing, even if it was a little uncomfortable for, for developed countries. But that relied on uh, those countries being able to use cheap labor as a, as a way to kind of uh, get onto supply chains. And so companies would find it useful to put assembly plants in places where workers were very cheap. Um, if you're then able to automate just about anything that can be done in a factory, um, you know, it's no longer, uh, m- there's no longer much point to putting a factory in China or, or Vietnam. And, uh, and those countries lose their, um, you know, lose their ability to start participating in the global economy. And that's, you know, that's worrying. Most of the world's people live in countries that are poor. Uh, if they don't have a viable route to develop and become rich, um, you know, that's going to mean a lot of human suffering. It might also lead a, mean a lot of migration that affects the politics in the rich world. Uh, it might lead to a lot of conflict. Uh, it's kind of a worrying scenario, I think. Yeah, definitely. Now, do you think that there are also I mean, geographic effects within countries? Like, for instance, it seems to me that places like San Francisco, New York, London, they're becoming so expensive that really only the, the wealthy can afford to live there and have any kind of quality of life. And I'm, I'm wondering if, if you see that as well? And and if so, do you think this is doing any part to these changes in the economy? I definitely think so. Uh, I mean, I think, um, 
the places that are, are most successful are the places where um, there is a, a, a large number of, of highly skilled people who are working to figure out how to use these new technologies. They're the places where what, what know-how we have about how to make digital technology work is concentrated. Um, and, and, and so a lot of the gains from the digital economy are also concentrated in those places. And that is that Silicon Valley, it's New York, it's London, a few other places. Um, now, I don't think it's necessary. It didn't, doesn't have to be the case that um, that ends up leading to, to the sort of inequality that we've seen uh, in those, you know, associated with those cities or the sort of house price growth that we've seen in those cities. I mean, we've, we've not been reacting in the way that we ought to. So in the 19th century, you know, there were really important cities that were at the heart of the industrial economy. And those cities, their population uh, grew, you know, 500% in the space of a few decades. And they were just building like mad, building houses, building infrastructure. Uh, and we haven't responded like that at all. Uh, you know, we could be building a lot more in San Francisco. We could be building, you know, new railways and subway systems uh, to try to help those areas accommodate more people so they could come to those places and take advantage of um, the gains that were, were happening there. But we really haven't done that. And so you have these two effects that are that, you know, interplay uh, together and and make those places um, highly concentrated areas of wealth that just aren't spread at all to the rest of the economy. Yeah. You know, I, I think some people would look at all of this, the politics and the economics of it and and paint what seems to be a pretty dystopian picture of the near future where you have these technological forces that keep pushing uh, greater and greater inequality. Then you have political figures who are essentially, they feel in the pocket of the 1% who aren't going to address the problem. And, and eventually things get so miserable for so many people that a, a literal revolution is essentially the only way out. I mean, kind of tearing it all down and, and rebuilding is, is that, is that an unreasonable way of looking at it? Do you think? I don't think that's unreasonable. Um, you know, and I keep, kind of pointing back to to what's happened before but i think in a lot of ways you know economic history is pretty instructive here and you know when you have these really dramatic technological changes you have to expect that society is going to need to adjust that we're going to need to govern a little differently that we're going to need to have different regulations and different tax systems um that you know things are going to have to change and you know big political changes don't occur until you get to something of a of a crisis point um now you know are things going to have to be as nasty as they were before i mean in the you know in the 19th century there were a lot of really ugly episodes um you know up to and including you know war and cold war between kind of capitalist and communist uh worlds and i i think you know, I'm optimistic uh, that we can avoid the, you know, the absolute worst phases of that process of adjustment that came before. Uh, hopefully we will have learned some lessons from from history. Um, you know, we have some things in place like democracy and social safety nets that ought to make the adjustment process a little easier. Um, but yeah, it's it's this is going to be a bit of a battle across society to figure out, you know, what do we need to do to make sure technology works for everyone? And, you know, that's the people who benefit now. Uh, are not going to give up their sort of benefits so easily. Uh, and um, and so it's going to be, in some ways, um, you know, ugly, but hopefully not too violent. 
Let, let, let's hope not. But, you know, I think that's that's a great point about the about the struggles and sometimes armed struggles in the 19th and even early 20th century. I think a lot of people aren't aware of how violent things really were. Um, another thing you mentioned is that you talked about the social safety net. And, you know, there are some economists, both on the right and on the left, who seem to favor, at, at least in theory, some variant of a universal basic income under the argument that essentially these jobs are, are not going to come back. We're not going to be able to find jobs for people, but we need to, we can't just abandon them essentially. And, and so I'm wondering, what do you think about the, the idea of a universal basic income? Well, I like it. I mean, I, I think it is, it's an efficient way to, uh, to, to give money to people who are poor and, and help them. Uh, it, uh, you know, I think there are some sort of philosophical things about it that I like. And, and, and I think most importantly, it gives people a way to refuse bad jobs. It, it gives workers uh, uh, bargaining power, um, which they're very short of uh, today. Um, I, you know, I think obviously there are some some very significant difficulties that have to be overcome. Uh, you know, in terms of how do we generate the political momentum to get it passed? How do we, uh, you know, change our sort of fiscal system so that we can raise that much in tax without destroying the economy? Um, but then I think there are also issues uh, that that the that the universal basic income doesn't really address. So you know, work isn't just about um, you know us getting the money to live. It's also about you know structuring our days, uh, giving us something to do, helping us have a sense of of purpose and the feeling that we're contributing. And um, you know, universal basic income doesn't solve those problems. So it's one component I think, or I think it will be one component. Uh, of the the uh, the solution uh, to to the digital challenge, but it's it's I don't think it's something we're going to see in the next few years, and I think it's going to have to come along with a lot of other things. Yeah, definitely. You know, I I wanted to ask you a, a little bit about that the kind of social and psychological aspects of that. I mean, we tend to assume that the only, or sometimes I think economists assume that the only reason that people need jobs is to provide them with with money. But as you pointed out, jobs for many people provide them with a with a sense of purpose purpose, uh, making them feel like they're contributing in some way. Uh, do we have any idea, do you think, what happens when all of a sudden a sizable proportion, maybe even a majority of the working, the formerly working public is left with money, but all this time on their hands? Well, it's kind of interesting. And I, I think that, you know, we have a bit of a natural experiment going on right now as we watch this huge generation of boomers start to retire. Because it's a lot of people who are still, for the most part, you know, quite healthy and uh, and um, and have a lot of, you know, they're looking at several decades in which they're going to be able to be functional adults in society, but they don't have to work and they have something like a universal basic income, either through Social Security or through their other pensions and 401ks. Um, and so what are they doing? And I think we see that in some cases, this ends up being a very bad thing uh, for retirees, that they... Um, you know, without kind of an external push to stay involved in society, um, they become quite lonely and depressed uh, or you know, there's sort of accelerated mental decline. Um, but then we also see the growth of new institutions and, and ways of uh, contributing to society. You know, people sort of volunteering to teach uh, workshops or, or classes, you know, let other people uh, learn the skills that they've developed. Um, there's a, you know, also quite a lot of leisure activity going on, right? People traveling the world and, and doing all sorts of things like that. So I think this will be an interesting experiment to watch in terms of 
what do we need to do to try to help people uh, spend their time in a way that's um, edifying uh, without sort of, you know, forcing them to do anything? Uh, you know, we don't want to sort of have a world where everyone is assigned tasks just to keep them busy. Um, and I think there will be different things that we learn as this process unfolds. You know, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about that because, for instance, I can see, uh, say, uh, a college professor retiring and say, oh, now I have the opportunity to, to take up photography or pottery or what have you. But I wonder if these sort of opportunities are much more easily available to sort of highly educated people with, you know, who've had better incomes and better lives. Whereas, you know, again, that guy who's been you know, working on the line at, at GM for 15 years years and says, well, your job has ceased to exist. I mean, does that person have those same sort of opportunities? And and it seems to me those are the people are going to be the real concern in in the years and the decades to come. Yeah. Well, I think there's two questions. One is the opportunity. uh, And I think, you know, people who have had more of a white collar life have more opportunity, both in the sense that they've been educated in ways that sort of help them figure out what they enjoy and how to spend their time in an edifying way. Uh, also, they probably have more money to spend. And, you know, the guy who's been working on the line might very well want to tour Europe, but can't do it on his social security check. Um, so the opportunity is certainly an issue. Um, but I think there's also um, a question of community. And, you know, people take their cues from how they ought to be spending their time uh, from their peers, from the people around them. And if there's segregation in communities where all the sort of white collar retirees are in one place uh, and all the blue collar retirees are in another, um, then it may be the case that you get these two equilibria, uh, one which is good and one which is bad. And so I think it's worth thinking about what do we need to do to strengthen the communities that retirees are in and to try to just have those soft social cues um, or, or to keep people engaged and, and, and talking together um, so they are, you know, not just shut in in front of their television, possibly, you know, just drinking their days away. And uh, I think in the U.S. especially, you know, we're a little uncomfortable talking about kind of that kind of community development. We It's a very individualistic place uh, and that's great. But um, it, I think in the future, it's going to be increasingly important to talk about the social capital that helps people live healthy and, uh, and and happy lives. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of people are, are definitely feeling this concern and this stress. And, and, and certainly a lot of folks have argued that this was in large part be- behind the election of, of uh, Donald Trump, the presidency. And so I'm wondering, do you see anything in his economic policies, uh, you know, trade, immigration, taxes that you feel would do anything to address what what you I've identified as kind of the underlying concerns? Uh, To be honest, no, not really. I mean, I think the only thing you might want to, you know, you might sort of reach for as as uh, as a positive would be the, uh, you know, the political activism that his arrival has uh, has spurred and the extent to which everyone is really engaged in politics now largely because they're angry or scared or, 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 or things of that nature, you know, that is something that can, can boost community ties and community involvement. Uh, I think it would be nice to not, you know, to, to not have that be the thing that pushes people into becoming more involved. The fact that they're scared to death or, or angry or, uh, you know, upset with outsiders in their community. Um, but no, I think um, the, the things he's talking about in terms of trade policy and tax policy, um, are not things that are going to really help the people who voted for him. I think cuts to social programs, cuts to education certainly aren't going to, um, to help 
you know, uh, help us prepare people for a world in which, uh, you know, uh, the working life is, is very different. So, um, so no, to be honest. Okay. I, you know, I wanted to, Perhaps a positive note, and I'll try to find a little bit of a silver lining here. I know at least in a, it was in a recent interview, in fact, with The Economist, where President Trump suggested he was open to the idea of a VAT tax, which a lot of economists feel could raise the sort of money that we would probably need to do something like enhance social programs. So I don't know, is that, am I reaching too much here, do you think? <laughs> Uh, well, it's, it's so there for a while there was a tax plan under consideration where there was something that looked a little bit like a VAT, and um, that was something that you know at the Economist we said this doesn't look um, this doesn't look awful. Um, I think actually that that plan sort of originated with the the House leadership with Paul Ryan and others. And uh, you're right, the in Europe uh, a VAT is it's a very efficient tax. It helps raise a lot of money that then can fund a more generous welfare state. Um, I'm just not, you know, sort of looking at what seems to be on the table. I'm not sure that raising a lot of money is kind of the priority of the tax reform that that's under consideration. But, you know, if you were able to get something like a VAT in place, that's something that you could come back to in future reform, uh, raise if necessary. And so, you know, that would be potentially a positive if it were to be passed. Yeah. I, I can only imagine the, the, the House Freedom Caucus's reaction to, to that sort of proposal. <laughs> but, uh, you know, one final question I have for you. What what advice do you have for, for people who want to develop a, a deeper understanding of economics? I mean, aside from your work and reading The Economist, I always recommend uh, The Economist to people. Uh, but are there any resources, whether they be websites, apps, books, podcasts, what have you, that you think would be particularly good, particularly useful to folks? Well, it's kind of an extraordinary time. Uh, there are just so many resources available. Uh, you know, I certainly would recommend people subscribe to The Economist and, uh, and, uh, and, and things of that nature. But there are some very good podcasts um, around. I, I like Russ Roberts's podcast. Um, I, uh, I like uh, FT Alpha Chat, even though the FT is something of a rival of ours. Um, and then there are also some good podcasts on, on sort of policy issues produced by uh, Vox.com. Uh, and then there are also some really good um, online courses, essentially, or online tutorials that relate to basic uh, basic economic concepts and then not so basic as well. And I, I, know, um, I know Tyler Cowen relatively well and what they've done uh, in creating Marginal Revolution University, which is a series of online economics courses, um, is pretty spectacular, and they're not—they're not boring. They're fun to to pay attention to. So, you know, those options are there. Uh, but then there's just so much to read, and I think it's an interesting time for economics in general because a lot of the academic debates are being hashed out in the open in newspaper editorials and in books. And I think it's a very exciting time to be learning about economics. Yeah, most, most definitely. All right. Well, with that, we'll close. Ryan Avent, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. It was my pleasure, Mike. That's it for this Politics Guys interview. We hope you liked what you heard and that you'll check out today's sponsors. LordTimepieces.com, makers of fashionable quality watches where you can get 10% off by using our code TPG at checkout. SeatGeek, the easy way to get tickets for live events at a great price and where you get $20 off your first purchase by using our code POLITICSGUY at checkout. And finally, Blue Apron. 
great fresh meals delivered right to your door for less than $10 per person per meal. Get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash TPG. That's blueapron.com slash TPG. If you've got a question, comment, correction, or just a random thought you want to share with us, you can reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. Our Facebook page, where you can message us and where we post throughout the week, is facebook.com slash politicsguys page. We're also on Twitter, at politicsguys. We'll be back with our weekly news roundup and analysis on Sunday. We hope you'll join us.